The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. How unified can any group be when the audience has certain favorites? Maybe they like Paul more than they like John or, or something <laughs> like that. And I wonder... <laughs> I got right to it, didn't I? Yeah. I, I just wondered if, if, if it's awfully difficult to be friends, and do you really care about whether or not you're friends when uh, you are a group such as the Beatles oh or yeah. whether you're the Rolling yeah. Stones or, or whoever? Uh, we didn't break up because we weren't friends. We just broke up out of sheer boredom, you know. And boredom creates tension. How can you get bored doing what you did? Because it was going on, it was not going anywhere, you know. We'd stop touring and the, we, we'd just sort of say, time to make an album, you know, go in the studio and we, the same four of us would be looking at each other and playing the same licks. And those silly haircuts, yeah. Those silly haircuts <laughs> that you have now. You see, yeah. notice he's got his now. <laughs> and uh, we... Hello. She was one of the most shocking and prolific novelists of her or any era. Her name was Amantine Lucille Aurore Dupin, but we know her better today by her nom de plume, George Sand. George Sand wrote an astonishing number of novels and plays and had friendships and affairs with an astonishing range of men and women. She dressed in men's clothing, and she inspired a host of 19th century authors and artists, including Russian writers like Turgenev and British writers like Marianne Evans, who adopted the name George, as in George Eliot, out of tribute to her French predecessor. It's hard to imagine a city like Paris being scandalized by transgression, but we're journeying back to the 1800s today. Oh, and what does John Lennon have to do with this? We'll explain it all. The astonishing, incredible, unsinkable George Sand, today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Happy summer, everyone. Boy, if there's one thing I love about summer, it's travel. Road tripping through your landscape of choice and watching your friends on their road trips thanks to the magic of social media. I have one friend who's on a great quest. He and his wife and their young children are visiting high points. High points. Apparently, you can do those as counties or countries but they're doing states, United States. Every time they visit the highest point in a state, they mark it off. I think they're up to 15 or 17 or so by now. So as a lot of you know, I've done a lot of traveling myself, and my friends suggested that I take a look at the list of high points to see if I've visited any. I might have a good number without even trying. Not something I set out to do. Maybe I just knocked a few off. I thought that wasn't a bad idea. And then he said, you know what? You can also look up the low points the lowest point in a state. Have you ever hit one of those? You might not even know it. But those are interesting to try to hit as well. People keep track of that. And frankly, I've spent a lot of time in ditches, as some of you know. Not really by choice, but just sort of ending up there, shall we say. One thing leading to another and so on. There you are in the ditch. That might be the low point in the whole state. So I figured I'd better look up the low points. It was very interesting to see where I was on the scale of high points and low points. Actually, it was less fun than I thought looking them up because, frankly, 
a lot of these low point trips had kind of rocky histories and outcomes. Not all of them were Disney World. <laughs> they hit some of them during some rough patches. Like I said, I have known my share of ditches. Even so, I was somewhat surprised by the tally. Low points, 42 out of 50. High points, zero. Can you believe it? It was hard not to see that as a metaphor of some kind. It's not exactly subtle. Jack Wilson, 42 valleys and zero peaks. Even valleys. Valleys might be too good of a word. <laughs> 42 bottomed out holes. 42 ditches. And then my friend said, well, hey, what are you counting as low points? 42, that might be giving yourself too much credit. Because you can count low points as dry ground, the lowest dry ground in a state, or you can count low points that are covered by water. So the lowest point in a state might be at the bottom of a deep lake or some river, for example. So I went back through the list, and frankly, I did not realize how many bottoms of lakes and rivers I've actually found myself in over the years. I crossed out three states. So there we go, people. 42 low points, or 39, depending on how you're counting. And do I start with the high points at zero? Nowhere to go but up with those. I have 50 to go. I'm not sure I could make it. It'll take me a while even to get to a respectable number. Or do I go for the ignominious record and shoot for all 50 low points? I could be the king of the low point. The best of the low, the lowest. Is there some kind of glory in that? I can't decide. In any case, I hope your summer is going well and that your highs are high and your lows are not overwhelming and depressing. One thing I'm not depressed about is our guest today. Oh, whoops. <laughs> I always say guest, or at least I always think guest, when what I really mean is Subject or topic, George Sand is our subject. She is not our guest. And I will explain that snippet at the beginning with John Lennon and Tom Schneider, I promise. We'll do that when we get to the right area, the right topic, subtopic, because here's what we have. Ten great points to make about George Sand. We're going to walk through the life and works of this fascinating author and person from 19th century France. Here's what we'll cover. I'll say this quickly so we can get right to the matter at hand. First, childhood and lineage. There's some royalty involved here, and it was all important to her. Her childhood was interesting as well. Then we'll get into her beginnings as a writer, her affairs and friendships. Very fascinating. She's very famous for that. Her novels, both the style and the substance. Her other writing, her writing life, her politics and her lifestyle, the reactions to her and her work. This is probably where we'll bring in John Lennon. Her influence, her literary historical importance. That's number nine. And finally, my take. George Sand, after this.
hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. She was born as Amantine Lucille Aurore Dupin in 1804. Her father and mother were married a month before the date of her birth, and I'll let you make of that what you will. It was a romantic birth. Her father, a military officer, was playing a country dance at the house of a fellow officer when he was told that his wife, who had not long left the room, had borne him a daughter. She will be fortunate, said his wife's sister. She was born among the roses to the sound of music. Her father had recently retired from the military. He'd been a second lieutenant in the French Army of the Republic, Napoleon's army. Her mother was the daughter of a Parisian bird fancier, which simply means that he kept bred, raised, and sold birds, possibly pigeons or canaries. Heredity was important to George Sand, where people came from, what their origins were, what their station in life was, and how it became what it was, and hers was tangled up with royalty. Through some lineage, some of which were recognized and legitimate and some of which was recognized but outside of marriage, she traced her line back to Louis XV, who had ruled as King of France from 1715 to 1774. In spite of that, she viewed herself as a woman of the people, both in background and in sympathies. The great humanist philosopher Rousseau was widely admired and read by those closest to her in her childhood, including her tutors, and she grew up in a kind of one-foot-in-one-foot-out state of being. Her father rejoined the military, serving as an advisor to one of Napoleon's leading cavalry officers. Young Aurore could recall a journey across the mountains at age three, where she was brought to join her father and was dressed in full military garb to please the commander. She also spent ten years of her youth with her grandmother in the country, where she was surrounded by good country folk, peasants, though she was in a bit of a privileged position. She got to know them well, nevertheless. Her grandmother, meanwhile, had narrowly escaped the guillotine and was never fully aligned with the revolutionaries and the people. At the same time, her grandmother admired Rousseau, and she allowed Aurore to be taught by a tutor who was a strong disciple of Rousseau and who allowed his young pupil to educate herself by wandering around nature, following her nose, as it were, and reading great books, always following her own instincts, encouraging her in her intellectual and naturalistic pursuits. Let's summarize George Sand's childhood this way. It was 
very effective in allowing her to see all kinds of sides of French life, and it was very fertile ground for a writer, especially the kind of writer that she was destined to become, one of those great generators of big novels stuffed with characters and observations and ideas about social classes and institutions. All these early years were grist for that mill. One more aspect of her life is worth mentioning before we get to her origins as a writer, her religious epiphanies. When she was still a preteen, she was inspired to tears by the simple music of children's songs and farm workers' ditties. And in this highly sensitive state, she invented her own deity, a kind of half-pagan, half-Christian god. She built an altar to this god made out of grass and moss. And then, shortly thereafter, she wound up entering into a convent run by English Augustinians, where she spent two years. If you recall Augustine or Augustine from our episodes on him, you'll remember the point where he hears the words tole lege, take it up and read, which sends Augustine to the Bible. Aurore also had a great epiphany in the convent chapel. Here's how she described it. Quote, I had forgotten all. I knew not what was passing in me with my soul rather than my senses. I breathed an air of ineffable sweetness. All at once, a sudden shock passed through my whole being. My eyes swam, and I seemed wrapped in a dazzling white mist. I heard a voice murmur in my ear, Tole, Lege. I turned round, thinking that it was one of the sisters talking to me. I was alone. I indulged in no vain illusion. I believed in no miracle. I was quite sensible of the sort of hallucination into which I had fallen. I neither sought to intensify it, nor to escape from it. Only I felt that faith was laying hold of me by the heart as I had wished it. I was so filled with gratitude and joy that the tears rolled down my cheeks. I felt, as before, that I loved God, that my mind embraced and accepted that ideal of justice, tenderness, and holiness which I had never doubted, but with which I had never held direct communion. And now at last I felt that this communion was consummated, as though an invincible barrier had been broken down between the source of infinite light and the smoldering fire of my heart. An endless vista stretched before me, and I part panted to start upon my way. There was no more doubt or lukewarmness. That I should repent on the morrow and rally myself on my overwrought ecstasy never once entered my thoughts. I was like one who never casts a look behind, who hesitates before some Rubicon to be crossed, but having touched the farther bank, sees no more the shore he has just left. End quote. That's a really nice passage. It gives a sense not only of how she writes, but how she thinks and feels. And now I think it's time to move on from her childhood and talk about our second topic, which is how this person got started as a writer. You might wonder why I skipped over the story of her marriage. As it turns out, my shrewd listener, the story of her marriage and its ending goes straight into her origins as a writer. She wrote as a response to the end of her marriage, which was itself kind of a fascinating saga, very fitting of the woman who was to become so famous. Aurora, she was still Aurora at this point, she was not yet George Sand, Aurora was pulled out of the convent by her grandmother, who never wanted her to actually be a nun. <laughs> Two years was enough. She had some adventures, 
Aurora did, and she kept reading Aristotle and Leibniz and Locke and, of course, Rousseau. And now she also added novels and poems, including Child Harold, which you will probably recall from our episode on Lord Byron. And then, after some great years of freedom where she went out shooting and rode around the country, she married a man with some outward similarities to her father. He was older than her, a retired military man. He was a gentleman. I'm sorry, a gentleman farmer now. They had a couple of kids together. This guy was focused on his cattle and his turnips. She, meanwhile, had other ideas. She began a platonic friendship with a lawyer who loved philosophy. She wanted a life of the mind. She wanted to explore. She wanted to expand her mind intellectually. And this bothered the husband. It was becoming clear that his wife had an intellect superior to his and was well regarded for it. He resented it, and he claimed he was jealous of her friendships, that they were interfering with their marriage. He started drinking. She endured it for a while. As long as he didn't impede her too much, she didn't mind being married and having it be kind of a facade marriage. But then he started making love to the maids right in front of her, right under her nose, and that was too much. She was not about to be humiliated like that. So, oh, and one more thing. One more thing. She found a paper in an envelope that said not to be opened till after my death. She opened it, and it was an angry screed against her, talking about how horrible she was. What kind of a husband would do that? How much bitterness do you have to have? If you're angry, wouldn't you just want things to change in your lifetime? Address someone directly? It's kind of a weakness to say, I'm afraid to say all this now, but I don't want my death to end the the debate we're having here, the fight we're in, I want everyone to know that I'll get the last word and I'll make you miserable for it. It also seems to me not just a weakness of character, but a bit of a weakness in the relationship. It's the act of someone who feels things slipping away, I think. Thankfully, George Sand jumped out of the marriage after that. The two agreed to a separation, which was surprisingly amiable. She got some money, which soon proved to be not enough. She cut out luxuries like painted fans and snuff boxes, but she still was broke, didn't have enough to live on. She had her daughter with her now, too. She ended up living in a garret, unable even to afford the coals for a fire. I like Aurora of this period. She's smart. She's tough. She's determined to enjoy her liberty, which she's just regained after her marriage. She's a child of the revolution, a woman of the people. There's some royal lineage, which she's proud of, but she's not living like some kind of self-proclaimed aristocrat. She's grinding it out, making the best of it. And there we go. She's with her daughter, protecting her as best she can. And here's where she started writing. She tried journalism. She knew she had brains, She was trying to make some money off it. She tried journalism, and she could write a lot, and she was very logical, but her her prose did not yet crackle the way journalists of her era did, successful ones. It was, her prose was described as lacking wit or sparkle. So she joined up with one of her colleagues on the paper, a man named Jules Sandow, who had plenty of wit and sparkle and was very attractive. Besides, they had known each other for years, and now they started writing articles together under the name Jules Sand. 
And then they wrote a novel together, and then a second novel. She earned more money than she had earned on her own. Things were looking up, and she and Jules began to have a love affair. As Sand put it later, this is George Sand, as she put it later, quote, I resisted him for three months, but then yielded. I lived in my own apartment in an unconventional style. Kind of a, a fan of grammar, not to get things right necessarily. I'm not one of those grammar Nazis, as they call them. But to see how it's used, I take great pleasure in that, seeing it used well. And here, I'm in love with the work that the semicolon in that sentence is doing. I resisted him for three months, but then yielded. Semicolon. I lived in my own apartment in an unconventional style. That semicolon is the equivalent of the blinds being drawn on a bedroom window or the tapestry curtain being pulled around the four-poster bed, both suggesting and then shielding us from the intimacy. We're broaching on our topic number three now, semicolons. (laughs) Semicolons. Just kidding. Topic number three is George Sand's affairs. She was George Sand now. She's 26 years old and just wrote her first novel by herself called Indiana. This was kind of a compromise with Jules Sandow using the name George Sand. It let her continue as the author that she and Jules Sandow had created, Jules Sand. Let her continue with that, sort of, using the last name. But it also acknowledged that this was different from that partnership. She offered to publish it as Jules Sand, in fact just keep going, even though she was the only one writing. But Sando didn't want his name to be on something he himself didn't write, which was too bad for him because the book was a huge success, and she wrote another novel quickly, Valentine. And now, George Sand was off to the races. Jewel Sando was only one of many lovers she had over the decades. She was free from her husband now and successful and had a kind of literary and artistic freedom which she was determined to explore in full. Some of the names are less lesser known now, and some are still very, very famous. So let's take a few of them roughly in order. There was Prosper Merimee, who was an author and historian, and is considered to have helped pioneer the novella-length work. There was Alfred de Musset, a famous poet and playwright and novelist, an actor named Pierre-Francois Boncage, a Swiss writer, Charles Didier, a French novelist, Felicien Malefile, a socialist politician and historian, Louis Blanc, an actress named Marie Dorval. That's officially considered an unconfirmed affair, but it was widely assumed that the two of them had a lesbian relationship, and letters from Sand to Dorval include references to things like, quote, wanting you either in your dressing room or your bed, end quote. That seems pretty close to a confirmation for me. And of course, the most famous affair of all, and the longest, her torrid affair with the composer Frédéric Chopin, with whom she had a 10-year affair from the age of 33 to 43. That's her age. He was six years younger than her. They had a tumultuous relationship, and yet he was at his most prolific during some of their unhappiest times. She was prolific all the way through, of course. (laughs) We'll get to that. Her, uh, her ability to write. Chopin wrote some of his best works, that's the point, even though they were fighting. He died only two years after they finally broke it off, succumbing to tuberculosis. At least some people think it's tuberculosis. That's what it's commonly thought of. Today, 
Some others think it was maybe cystic fibrosis. In any case, he was at the tragically young age of 39. Things did not go so well for the two of them at the end, anyway. Sand wrote a novel with a sickly character that was probably based on Chopin, which wasn't great for their relationship. Then Sand had a falling out with her daughter and her daughter's husband over money. Chopin sided with the daughter, which made George Sand accuse him of treachery and betrayal. As his health failed and he prepared to die, he ran out of money. His friends had to pay for his final hotel, and they paid for his funeral costs. 3,000 people turned up for the funeral, including, including Franz Liszt and Victor Hugo and other luminaries from the artistic world. George Sand was not in attendance. Let's take a break there so we can hear a little Chopin. This is something he wrote during his affair with George Sand. We'll be back with more about her novels and her other affairs, her writings, and her life after this short break. was an incredibly prolific novelist. These were the days when novelists cranked out pages. Her contemporaries are other writing machines like Balzac and Sir Walter Scott and Victor Hugo and Charles Dickens. We've gotten away from this now, at least in what we would call literary fiction. A 300-page novel every four or five years might be considered standard for our best writers. Here's George Sand's output. By contrast, Indiana and Valentine, as I mentioned, her first two novels were published in 1832. In 1833, she published Lilia, Andrea, Maltea, Jacques, Coruglu, and Leon Leone. Six novels. In 1834, she slowed down a bit and only published two again. And after things, after that, things marched along at a pace of roughly two novels a year. Sometimes there were none, and sometimes there were as many as four. In the end, she wrote something like more than 50 novels. I've counted 59, and some sources put this at more than 70, and I've seen other sources that say there are more than 80. It's as if she's still writing. <laughs> We're trying to keep up with her. Maybe she is. Who knows? Oh, and she wrote several volumes of autobiography and at least a dozen plays, three collections of short stories. Why not? 
and a ton of letters, thousands of letters, she would settle in to write at 10 p.m. and tell herself that she could not get up from her chair until 5 a.m. And she would write straight through the whole, the whole way. She never stared at the blank page. She just let it go, let it rip. Oh, and she also wrote book reviews and political texts. And at one point, after the 1848 revolution began, she was inspired to start her own newspaper and fill that with column inches as well. Were her books any good? Someone who writes, we're a little suspicious of someone who can write that much today. I think they're worth dipping into. I'm not going to tell you to read all 59 or 70 or whatever the total is. I will tell you that giving one or two a try is worth the effort. Find one with a description that appeals to you, then fall back on the sofa or headboard or beach towel and let yourself be carried away for a while. It's like reading Trollope or Sir Walter Scott or Victor Hugo or Balzac or Mrs. Gaskell. You'll be traveling in time, not just for the subject matter, but in the whole style of novel. It's, it's a, a conversation with the novelist. They'll be talking to you. Some Today, it might be Stephen King, minus the horror, of course, or maybe someone like John Irving, novelists who fill the pages and fill them full. You get your money's worth with novelists like this. She delivered those pages. Actually, she had signed up with a publisher to be paid a certain amount per year, as long as she delivered a certain number of pages. Fortunately, she had plenty of ideas, and she had a very fluid prose style. She was not agonizing over word choice or wrestling metaphors into submission, as someone like Flaubert did, her younger contemporary. She was not concerned with reinventing the form of the novel. The novel was doing just fine. <laughs> Later, writers like Virginia Woolf or James Joyce found that they needed to inhabit a kind of mental space where they were questioning the novel's form. Henry James did this. George Sand was not really wrestling with the novel as a form at all. Readers were reading it, and writers were writing them. Here's how one early critic summarized her method. Quote, She wrote a la Diablo. Let me pause here for those of you who aren't familiar with that phrase. The translation literally is in the devil's style, but I think a better translation might be hellbent. She wrote a la Diablo. So let's start that again. Quote, She wrote a la Diablo starting with some central thesis to set forth or some problem to investigate, but with no predetermined plot or plan of action. Round this nucleus, her characters, too often mere puppets, grouped themselves, and the story gradually crystallized. This unmethodical method produces in her longer and more ambitious novels, in Consuelo, for instance, and its continuation, a tangled wilderness, the clue to which is lost or forgotten, but in her novelettes... When there is no change of scenery and the characters are few and simple, it results in the perfection of artistic writing, an art that nature makes. End quote. Most people will say, I think, that her most enjoyable novels, the ones we profit from the most, are from her country period, where she wrote about people in small towns in the French countryside, near the estate where she grew up, the estate where she was living as an adult. She knew this world well starting with her childhood, and there's a lot of humanity in these books. There are also romances, like Consuelo, the book mentioned above, A Romance of Venice, but frankly, I don't think these hold up as well. They're not as well regarded. You might also read one of her memoirs or her letters to and from Flaubert, 
So we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Let me give you some more details from her life to let you know how controversial she was and how she got that way. The figure she cut as she traveled through 19th century France. I told you that she had an affair with the writer Alfred de Musset, which she genuinely, whom she genuinely seemed to care for. The two of them ran off to Venice, and at first it was like a honeymoon. Lots of lovemaking and conversation. They could stay up all night talking. But then she had to pay the bills. She was a working woman, working writer, so she went back to writing her eight hours a day, and the sight of her cranking out all of that prose sent poor Alfred, who was not as prolific, into something like a nervous breakdown. He ran out to cafes to spend his days with this clattering <laughs> clattering machine writer leaving her behind. And eventually he started wandering into houses of ill repute to try to clear his mind and not think about all the writing that he was not doing. And he fell ill with some undiagnosed illness. Here, George Sand showed how much she cared for him. She lovingly helped nurse him back to health. Except, in the middle of this, she fell in love with the Venetian doctor that she'd brought in and ran off with him back to Paris, leaving Alfred in his sickbed in the hotel. Alfred was in agony over this. He felt betrayed, which is a little bit understandable. Sand, meanwhile... Once she got to Paris, quickly got bored of the Venetian doctor. And to try to smooth things over with Alfred, whom she had left behind, she sent him a lock of her hair, which did not really do the trick. Alfred remained angry about this episode almost until his death. Multiply that story times 50, and you get a sense of how George Sand must have been viewed by her contemporaries in Paris, not playing by the rules of others, she was free and determined to be free, and that meant doing what she wanted, following her heart, not what society or religion or morality or gossip hounds or whatever other forces told her what she could do or what she could not do. Her most famous quote is, There is only one happiness in life, to love and be loved. Another one is, quote, No human creature can give orders to love. That's sort of like the Woody Allen line, the heart does what it wants, if that's a Woody Allen line. I know he's quoted it. Here's a third quote of George Sands. My profession, she said, is to be free. I love that one. If you combine all these lines, these three quotes I've given you, you can get a sense of her worldview, and you can see how many people would object to the kind of libertine behavior that it would result in. What might appear to some as embracing freedom, an admirable thing, might appear to others as immoral or just plain selfish or inconsiderate. How would you like to be on your sickbed, spending weeks thinking about your lover jilting you for your doctor? The two of them, <laughs> the people you most need in the world, running off together, taking, leaving you for dead. And then of all things, getting a lock of her hair in the mail. What do you think the letters said that accompanied that lock of hair? Dear Alfred, here's something for you, assuming you're still alive. I hope you found another doctor. And you might be happy to know, I've gotten tired of this last one. He's kind of boring. <laughs> was that the letter? I, I don't know that we have the letter. Maybe it was just a note that said, whoopsies. Whoopsies. <laughs> 
<laughs> but hey, just as I think she probably offended many and hurt many, I think that much of the reaction and overreaction was no doubt fueled by the fact that she was a woman. Men who run around doing what they want are not nearly as condemned for it as women generally are. They're praised. That's true today, and all the more so in the middle of the 19th century. But people who knew George Sand liked her. She had a lot of friends and a lot of admirers. She didn't just take lovers. She loved life. She immersed herself in politics, and then, after becoming disillusioned, she wrote to a friend, You think I've been drinking blood out of the skulls of aristocrats. Instead, I've been reading Virgil and learning Latin. That was George Sand, in a nutshell. She bathed in the river against her doctor's orders. She didn't disdain housework and homemaking. She liked needlework. She found it relaxing, and she loved to make jam. She was also an accomplished painter and sketch artist. And famously, she smoked cigars and dressed like a man. She pointed out that the clothes were more comfortable and sturdier and less expensive than the fancy dresses that women of her time were expected to wear. Men's clothes made her more mobile. It was literally easier to move around when wearing them, and they were also more mobile in another sense, in the sense that they allowed her to enter certain salons and clubs that were men only. The men wanted her there. You could make an exception for the brilliant novelist, the brilliant conversationalist. They wanted her there, but if she came in clearly dressed as a woman in a, a big frilly dress and a hat, it might be harder to sneak it by the people in the clubs who didn't want her there. If you look at it that way, dressing as a man made her less conspicuous, not more. It's not trying to draw attention to herself, drawing less attention to herself. You could admire her for that, looking at it that way, as many did and have. You could also just admire the ballsiness she had for not caring what people thought, for taking the comments and objections and criticism and condemnation in stride. It's another point in her favor as a novelist. She had the courage of her convictions, and her skin was thick and tough. Both good points for someone writing two to six novels a year. Here's a wonderful passage from a recent critic, Belinda Jack, who described what it was like to encounter the life and works of George Sand in 20th century America. The life is so well known and so full of those stories, all those affairs, those many people who came into her orbit, and so full of those iconic set pieces, the clothes, the cigars, that the writing itself came as a surprise to Ms. Jack. Here's her description, quote, only when I began to read George Sand's novels did I become uneasy with my image of her as a somewhat monstrous public figure, one which suggested a self-seeking, unreflecting, and egotistical inner self. What I encountered reading her was a quite different presence. Her voice can be intimate, unpretentious, gentle, sympathetic, and disarmingly honest. Reading George Sand's novels, you hear her tone, anguish, suffering, and hope, Frustration and yearning, despair and courage, tenderness are all written in. There is remarkably little anger and great compassion. On the other hand, her insight into people, combined with a recognition of the injustices and hypocrisy of society, suggests a capacity to manipulate others with subtle skill. 
and her astute awareness of the way in which women collude in their own unhappiness because of a lack of courage to take control reveals a deep frustration with women whose solution is to assume the role of victim. She considered marriage a primitive institution and looked forward to a time when another kind of arrangement would allow for the coming into the world of children without forever shackling the freedom of their parents. She believed in the essential equality of women and men, despite their differences. These did not imply a spiritual or intellectual feminine inferiority. Vanity alone, she believed, explained men's adherence to an unjust social order. End quote. So let's talk about the John Lennon and Tom Schneider clip we started the show with. I love this interview. I think about it all the time. How in 1975, the interviewer Tom Schneider is talking about the Beatles, and he mentions their silly haircuts. And he's sitting there himself with long hair. Not as long as the hippies of the day, but as long as the Beatles had worn the mop tops. The silly haircuts he's just referring to, he's sitting there with a mop top, a former mop top, saying to John Lennon, oh, and there you were, you guys, with those silly haircuts. And John Lennon immediately picks up on this and says right back, yeah, kind of like yours now, silly haircuts. How silly is it, Tom? (laughs) Schneider's a good sport. He laughs at it. He doesn't deny it. I like Tom Schneider. I'm not saying this to pick on him but I'm fascinated by the exchange. It tells us a lot about what it means to conform and what it means not to conform, how we react to it, and what our response says about us. There wasn't anything inherently silly about the mop-top haircut. Schneider didn't sit there thinking that he himself had a silly haircut. He thought he had a respectable haircut, one perfect for a respectable television host in 1975. The Beatles' haircuts were viewed as silly, even 10 years later, by someone who is literally wearing a haircut like that. It's because it's not about the hair itself, it's about conformity. Everyone else in 1964 had short hair, a crew cut, and four guys showed up who didn't. What happens when someone doesn't conform? What's our response? Are we on the side of the experimental? Do we love the freedom that it shows? Do we admire it? Or do we criticize, reject, shake our heads? Some of us push forward. Some of us go along with the crowd. Some of us are in the back of the crowd. And then, sometimes years later, opinion shifts, tastes change, and the crowd accepts something as a given, as normal, when that thing years earlier had been out of bounds, over the top, gauche, In that context, let's look at the reactions to George Sand. Some of these are about her, some are about her work, and sometimes you wonder if the reactions to her work are really about her at all. Are you on the side of this person, this woman, showing incredible freedom, a freedom she had certainly earned, at least financially, through lots of hard work? Or are you one of those who feels like a transgression is a signal of something objectionable, Something outside the norm is something to suspect. It shows a kind of disrespect for everyone else, thumbing your nose at the culture. Let me put this another way, because I've been thinking about this kind of topic a lot. The idea was triggered. It's not a new idea, of course, but it was triggered for me by a line in Amazon's series, The Man in the High Castle. That show imagines an alternative reality where the Americans lost World War II, The eastern seaboard is under Nazi rule, and the west coast of America is controlled by the Japanese. 
This is all from a book by Philip K. Dick. And it's interesting, although frankly, I watched the first season and I've kind of gotten stalled in the second. I've moved on to other things. The Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam is on Netflix, and it's absolutely amazing. I'm in the middle of that now and about 10 other shows, including Cheers, which I was invited to talk about for another podcast. I'll have more information on that later. That was fun. I was glad to have the chance to do it. Okay. (laughs) So where were we? The Man in the High Castle. They show a school on the East Coast, Americans learning from their Nazi teachers and their Nazi textbooks, and the student is studying for a test. And he says to someone, how many slaves did George Washington have? He asks, and they tell him the answer. And he says, oh, right, and Thomas Jefferson? I can't remember the numbers, but it's something like 200 and 420 or something. And I I was watching that. It was a little bit shocking. and But then I thought, well, of course, this is totally accurate. That's exactly what they would be studying if they were in that school and the German powers were writing the textbooks. They'd be saying... To the Americans, here are the key figures of your past. Here's what we're going to emphasize about them. These are facts. Those are true things that occurred. They weren't made up. And they weren't insignificant facts. You might see them mentioned or alluded to in a textbook here today. A good textbook would would put that context in and mention that they were slaveholders and, and frame it in a way that lets you know that Even though these were good men with good ideals, they were not perfect. But you would never see today an eight-year-old who was preparing for a multiple-choice test and memorizing the numbers of slaves that they held. They'd be much more likely to memorize Washington and Jefferson's birthdays or the states where they were born or the names of their wives or something. Maybe a famous quote of theirs or something like that. But this isn't just limited to imaginary Nazis. We don't have to imagine that it was Nazis. What if America had lost the War of Independence? Let's say the British had won. It could have easily happened. We could be sitting in school reading our British textbooks, and we'd come to the passage where we'd want to know about Washington and Adams and Jefferson and all these people who we grew up with, we grew up hearing about. We lived in the place where those people walked around and young minds might say, wait, these guys were born here just like me and they wanted their own country. And I kind of do too. I can sympathize with that. Why exactly do we have this monarch who lives all the way across an entire ocean running things? Why are those dudes in London in the parliament calling all the shots? What do they know? And the textbook would give us the answer. Oh, sure, these people called for a new country. They even took up arms for a while and fought a battle to try to gain freedom, as they called it, to try to gain independence, as they thought, as they, as they referred to it. But look at these hypocrites. They were slave owners, most of them. Those are the freedom fighters. They couldn't look past their own self-interest. They wrote a few high-minded documents... But in the end, they fell short. They owned people. We look at it the other way around now. We say, yes, they were slaveholders, but look at the better angels of their nature. That was an atrocity, slavery, but they didn't, these men didn't escape their times fully. They never overcame it, and it's to their ultimate discredit. But we're weighing the good with the bad here. We're not going to discount the beauty and majesty of the Declaration of Independence or the 
constitution because of the flaws of its authors. We're going to look at the values underneath those documents, underneath these people, and see if they're good values. We can hold ourselves to these ideals, to these standards, and say, yes, we agree. We'll be better people if we can live up to these ideals, and if we make decisions to try to extend these ideals, to expand them, to allow them to cover more people, not just white, able-bodied, land-owning men. Let's come down on the side of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for cigar-smoking, cross-dressing women, too. If a cigar-smoking, cross-dressing woman comes out and says, guess what? I'm dressing this way because it helps me rob banks. Okay. Maybe we'll say, is that really such a worthy goal? Do we need to applaud you for doing that? Might not object to the cigars per se, but I might not hold you up as a champion of anything important either. But if a cigar-smoking woman wears a suit and a top hat and says, I'm doing this because I believe in freedom, and I believe in social mobility, and I believe in inclusion, and I believe that I shouldn't be held in a fancy dress like a bird in a cage... If my response is, well, I think you're undermining society or corrupting youth or putting dangerous ideas in the minds of young women or just being disrespectful to me. If I say, I object to your loose morals, I object to the way that you seem to be saying that you can love women as well as men or that you should be invited to places that we've segregated by gender. Well, that would say something about me, wouldn't it? about my values, about my willingness to keep people down. I'm not saying which side is better. You can probably guess what side I'm trying to be on. i just saying that when we, we talk about haircuts, we're not talking about haircuts. We're talking about power and pressure and control. We're talking about people's beliefs and things being done to challenge them. We're talking about resistance to change. Change is not necessarily always good. Sometimes change can and should be resisted, but the hardest thing is to be honest about why you're in favor of change or why you're resisting it. You can always invent reasons, but they're not always the real reasons. Being honest with yourself is one of the very hardest things to do. Right up there with its close cousins, examining your own motives and admitting your past mistakes. So, Let's hear from the people who reacted to George Sand. George Sand touched so many lives. She was so famous. I've mentioned a bunch already, but really, a list of the authors whom she knew or had an affair with or whom she corresponded with or influenced is like a who's who of 19th century European literature. Her friends included Franz Liszt, the composer, French writers like Flaubert, Balzac, Baudelaire, Saint-Beuve, Alfred de Vigny, Chateaubriand, Dumas, and Zola, and writers from elsewhere like the German Heinrich Hein, or the American Henry James, the British critic Matthew Arnold, the poets Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Russians Dostoevsky and Turgenev, as well as painters like Eugene Delacroix being the best known. George Eliot, of course, found half of her own pseudonym, thanks to George Sand, which I love. George Eliot, I think, was a superior novelist to George Sand, especially if we measure by quality over quantity. But still, George Sand was not just a novelist, but a figure, a force, 
She stood for things. She represented them. She was doing it her way. A worthy person for Marianne Evans to admire. Even if we maybe think her books weren't always of the highest quality, especially today. Baudelaire, on the other hand, said, quote, She is stupid, heavy, and garrulous. Her ideas on morals have the same depth of judgment and delicacy of feeling as those of janitresses and kept women. The fact that there are men who could become enamored of this slut is indeed a proof of the abasement of the men of this generation. End quote. V.S. Pritchett, writing in the 20th century, was not exactly kind either. She was a thinking bosom and one who overpowered her young lovers. End quote. What the... <laughs> what the hell does that mean, V.S.? A thinking bosom? Would you say that John Updike was a thinking penis? Actually, never mind. Maybe you would. <laughs> Maybe that's fair. Oh, poor Mr. Updike. We should do a show for Mr. Updike. We'll <laughs> may he rest in peace. And may V.S. Bridget rest in peace. Let's move on. Speaking of the 20th century, A.S. Byatt adopted sand and references to her throughout possession. Virginia Woolf cited her in A Room of One's Own, along with George Eliot and Charlotte Bronte, who had written under the name Currer Bell, and said that we could see with these women writing under men's names, men's pseudonyms, how their inner strife was somewhat papered over by adopting the name of the man, but this veil never really fully worked. You could see the woman inside trying to break free. Tom Stoppard had references to Sand in his Coast of the Coast of Utopia trilogy, the plays. And George Sand made a cameo in Isabella Allende's book Zorro. She's been in a million movies, mostly period pieces, mostly revolving around her country house with the musicians and the painter Delacroix and so on. All these artists living together, arguing, loving, creating with the woman who could write eight hours a day at the center. She appears in Proust as young. But they were, they didn't really overlap. Proust was five years old when George Sand passed away. But she appears in his novel as young Marcel is comforted by his mother as she reads to him from a George Sand novel. And we learn that Marcel's grandmother had given several George Sand novels as a gift. Back to the 19th century. Elizabeth Barrett Browning called her the large-brained woman and large-hearted man, and wrote two poems dedicated to her. One is called To George Sand, A Desire, and another was To George Sand, A Recognition. Thackeray said that George Sand's diction was like the sound of village bells falling sweetly and softly on the ear. John Stuart Mill said her, said her prose sent a shiver through him, like a symphony of Haydn or Mozart. Leslie Stephen urged Thomas Hardy to read George, Stan George Sand, especially her country stories. Everyone admired how Sand understood the country, or as was often said, that she understood the heart of the peasant. Leslie Stephen said to Hardy, as he was urging these novels on, on him, that the country stories seemed to him to be perfect. Quote, The harmony and grace, even if strictly inimitable, are good to aim at. End quote. He also thought her memoir was one of the finest that he had ever read. Our old friend Alfred, the jilted lover, never again resumed his affair 
with her, but at one point he had softened to the point where he could write, quote, tell her that I love her with all my heart, that she is still the most womanly woman I have ever known, end quote. Turgenev wrote to Flaubert, Quote, she loved both of us, but you above all. What a heart of gold she had. What absence of every petty, mean, or false feeling. What a brave man she was, and what a good woman. End quote. Balzac loved her, and loved her writing, especially her facility with imagery, strong imagery. He said the image was in the word with George Sand, and he said that if a critic didn't like her writing, it showed that there was something wrong with their critical standards. Walt Whitman liked the book Consuelo and seems to have pulled a few passages from the the sequel to Consuelo into his own thinking. We see some elements of that reflected in his poetry. And the literary critic Sant Bouve, her friend for 30 years but never her lover, said, In the great crises of action, her intellect, her heart, and her temperament are at one. She is a thorough woman, but with none of the pettiness subterfuges, and mental reservations of her sex. She loves wide vistas and boundless horizons and instinctively seeks them out. She is concerned for universal happiness and takes thought for the improvement of mankind, the last infirmity and most innocent mania of generous souls. Her works are in very deed the echo of our times. Wherever we were wounded and stricken, her heart bled in sympathy and all our maladies and miseries evoked from her a lyric wail, end quote. Here's a story I love. Dostoevsky was a huge fan of George Sand. He admired her novels so much, he went ahead and translated one of them, only to learn to his dismay that it was actually already out in Russian. <laughs> there was no need to translate it. It was all for naught. Let's end with Flaubert. We might say that he's pure, a pure reactor. The two weren't lovers, and he certainly wasn't an admirer of her prose style. Not something he would slavishly follow. He had his own path, but he liked her, and the two of them became friends. They met when she was 53 and he was 35. Madame Bovary had just been published. At a dinner party, she was overheard murmuring to him, You are the only one here with whom I really feel at ease. Their letters, we have something like 400 of their letters, are a treasure. As they both talk about their art and their lives to one another, Flaubert finds it hard to praise her writing. He's looking for something different, something harder, sharper, more finely honed. He's kind of a more modern novelist in that sense. And he thinks that she lapses into sentimentality, both in writing and in life. At one point, he accuses her of believing too much in humanity and the power of love. He says, Ah, if you could only hate. Quote, That is what you lack, hate. Despite your great sphinx eyes, you have seen the world through a golden haze. End quote. George Sand wrote back, The sadder you grow, the more I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. You think I'm awash in love? Aha. Your cynicism makes me love you all the more. Flaubert could be affectionate too. You're like fresh bread, he wrote. If you've been to France and eaten the bread, you know what high praise that is. 
They had artistic differences. It's easy to take Flaubert's side now and say that he was careful and created greater art while she was fast and careless, and, and that led to sloppiness. But their argument about literature also morphs into an argument about life, about life and how to live it. He says that if he had to choose between matter and form, he would take form. If it was substance versus style, he would choose style. He said, I endeavor to think well always in order to write well, but I do not conceal the fact that my object is to write well. Flaubert wrote that an author shouldn't put himself into his work or write books with his heart. And George Sand said, I do not understand it all then. Oh no, it is all incomprehensible to me. For her, you had to live your life and feel your feelings and think your thoughts, and then let it all flow through you. You do not know what it is, Flaubert wrote, to spend a whole day holding one's head and squeezing one's brains to find a word. Ideas flow with you freely and continually like a stream. With me, they come like trickling water, and it is only by a huge work of art and effort that I can get a waterfall. Ah, I have had some experience of the terrible torture of style. George Sand just could not relate to this at all. She was amazed at the idea that this was something he had to wrestle with. She said that for her, life was like a wind, and it played on what she called her old harp to produce the music. She chastised Flaubert or suspected that he had made a kind of error. Quote, the holy of holies, as you call literature, is only secondary to me in life. I have always loved someone better than it, and my family better than that someone. End quote. Is that wrong? I'm not so sure. We read Flaubert now. His book has lasted longer, but George Sand was hugely influential to enormous numbers of people in her day. Not just influential in the terms of literary style, but in terms of expressions of feeling and attitudes toward the world. Her books changed the world, too, left an imprint, came from the heavens and flowed through her pen and into the hearts and minds of the readers, just as Flaubert's did. Flaubert and Sand had a beautiful affinity for one another. Listen to this passage from Sand to Flaubert. She was 62 when it was written. They've been friends for almost 10 years now. She's going to visit him again at his house. She's referring to some past visits and planning the next one. At the last visit, they had walked around town visiting local sites and stayed up until four in the morning smoking and eating whatever Flaubert had in his kitchen. And Sand says that, that, that this time, quote, I'll come and stay, but only on condition that you don't turn out of your own room. I can sleep anywhere, in the cinders or under a bench in the kitchen, like a watchdog. If the weather's fine, I'll make you rush around. If it goes on raining, we'll toast our shanks and tell one another our love problems, and the great river will run black or gray under the window. End quote. How marvelous is that? Wouldn't you like to get letters from a correspondent like that? Someone who loves life that much? She died not long after. Flaubert went to her funeral. There was a light rain, and he stood in the rain, and he wept. It seemed to me he wrote later, that I was burying my mother a second time. Flaubert's second mother. He'd been reading George Sand's works since he was 17, and for all of her great influences on the literary world, 
Is it too much to suggest one more? Is it too much to suggest that his great creation, the immortal Emma Bovary, with her frustration in marriage, her difficulty with bourgeois norms, her longing to be free, and her doomed end, might all that have been a little inspired by the example of one who took the opposite path, the one who jettisoned marriage, who thumbed her nose at norms, and made sure that if she had nothing else, she would have her freedom. Can we say that Flaubert might have dreamed up his heroine and basically wrote it backwards from this premise, that he gave his creation all of George Sand's longings and potential frustrations, but took away all the tools that she would use to overcome them? Can we see this as Flaubert's trick and perhaps his final judgment, his final stamp of approval of the prolific novelist he later befriended? Can we say that Madame Bovary might have lived longer and would definitely have been happier had she been a little more like Madame Sand? Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. George Sand. I feel like she was a guest after all to spend so much time with her. I'm a little in love and a little exhausted. It must have been what many, many men and women in the 19th century thought as that remarkable woman whirled through their lives. We're rolling along here at the History of Literature podcast. Mike Palindrome is on holiday, but don't worry. He'll be back soon enough. And we're reading and writing and doing our best to bring you the very finest in literary podcasting shows or whatever this is. This motley little show. This loose, baggy monster of a podcast. This audio black. This eruption of the heartfelt and completely inessential. This home for wayward thoughts. The unscrupulous meanderings of a lost and lonely soul. The lukewarm takes of a kindly dullard. Oh, and here is where I'm supposed to send you, the listener, to patreon.com slash literature to see if you would like to contribute. <laughs> did I sell you on the did, did I sell you on the idea of sponsoring this wasteland of a product? No? No, no, probably not. Shot myself in the foot again. Well, hey, guess what? I still have one good one. One foot is in ribbons. Sure, naturally, bullet holes have done their worst. Half a toe left out of five. That's why they call me Stumpy. Is that fair? In any way, the other foot is still pristine. And yet, no one ever talks about that. No one ever calls me the guy with the beautiful foot or Jack Nicefoot. It's Stumpy all the way. Think about that the next time you go out slurring someone with a nickname. Why is it Captain Hook? He had a hand. <laughs> he, he had as many hands as hooks. Why not call him Captain Hand? Focus on the positive, people. It's out there if you're willing to look. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>